You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Tonight's reading comes from 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, An overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. This is the word of the Lord. God, our Father, we are thankful for your word. We pray that we might sing it always. For your words are true, and that is true, O God. Help us to know and trust these words even more, a little bit more, this evening. Help us to see and know Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. May be seated. Uh, Tonight's a torch night, so if you are a fourth through a sixth grader and you want to talk a little bit about the last couple of weeks about a little bit about gender and about elders and deacons tonight with Caleb and Emily. You can go do that now. My name is Nathan. If I haven't met you, I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Church, and it's, it's just a real joy to be with you every week. Like, I love my job. It's the best. Just like thinking about the Bible with you all and pressing into the glories of Christ. Uh, in addition to a shorter-term announcement that Clint shared about next Sunday, we're meeting at 2 p.m. here. Remember? Are we, is anybody going to be here at 5? No. Maybe some international students. Maybe Toby, Toby, Lydia. Uh, yeah, there's a big football game with bad food, and it is awesome next Sunday. Uh, but in addition to that shorter-term announcement, we've got a bit of a longer-term announcement to share with you tonight as well. This past week, we, sh- we signed a new lease agreement with First United Methodist Church, which is right behind us, uh, which will begin... Oh, yeah, there's some... some yeah. Uh, You might be thinking, what in the world? Uh, This begins March 24th, will be our first Sunday across the street there, and we are very, very excited about this for a lot of reasons. Uh, There are incredible children's ministry rooms and an enclosed outdoor playground. Yeah, Christchurch kids, workers are very excited, yes. Uh, There are tons of adult classrooms, which will help us accommodate our core classes, which will be our hour long class, adult classes, which will begin shortly after we move across the street. There's an awesome sound system that our musicians can just plug into, and there was much rejoicing, yes. Uh, There are screens and projectors, which means that we will probably start using those, and we can at least use these uh, printed liturgies, perhaps as just a supplement. Uh, There is a large and awesome kitchen and fellowship hall, which will accommodate more regular and ongoing potlucks and after-church meals. Our rent is going to be considerably cheaper. That's amazing. And wait for it, the pews are padded. Woo, yeah, all right. Uh, 
So we have been so, so thankful for these past two years at St. John. It's been great, but over and over the thing that people have said when they have walked through First United Methodist Church uh, with us is just when, we, when you walk in, it just feels warm, uh, and I think you're going to like it. So we'll keep you updated with more details in the next two months, especially as we get closer, uh, but this has been in the works for about a year or so now, so we're really excited to officially make it official with you guys. Okay, we've been walking through the letter of First Timothy together, uh, and in some ways, subconsciously, I kind of thought that we like got over the big hump of like gender stuff in chapter 2 of First Timothy 2 last week, and now it's just smooth sailing for the rest of the letter. Uh, but that's not the case. We're just getting started. There is so much here for our good. Some of you may have thought as you read about elders and deacons this week on your own, or as you heard Aaron read it just now, well, this doesn't apply to me. I've got a week or two to check out. I guess this maybe. Uh, a sermon later on as we get through elders and deacons will have more practical importance for me, so uh, better luck next time. But no, introducing this letter several months ago, I told us that this is going to be a helpful, helpful letter for us because this is, these are instructions for a young church. And we are a young church. Now, two months into this letter, and already understanding it better now than I did then, I'd say now that this isn't just Paul's instructions to a young church, but this is Paul's instructions to the family of God, no matter where they are, no matter what their age. But we are a young church, and over half of us here, over half of us here who are here tonight and are with us in membership were not with us when we first started this thing, when we came from Desert Springs Church two years ago. And uh, while we go over things like elders, like deacons in our membership class, which, like Clint said, we're going to start that in two weeks from now, so sign up for that. You'll hear more about elders and deacons then. Still, many of you come from different church backgrounds, different church traditions, which use words like these, elders and deacons, uh, but they might use them perhaps quite differently than we do around here. Or perhaps you've just become a Christian and you don't have any or much at all of a church background and don't really understand what it is that we mean or when, when you hear us say things like elders and deacons and other very churchy sounding words. Perhaps you think you know what we're talking about and assuming when we talk about words such like as church leadership, but really you're just importing assumptions from like corporate business America leadership into church leadership. And if we're being honest, many churches have done the same thing. Just imported corporate America assumptions about leadership into the church. We live in a leadership culture. In the early 80s, get this, in the early 80s, an average of three books were published every year on the topic of leadership. Like that sounds incomprehensible to us now, right? But it was not that long ago. By 1990, that number had grown to an average of 23 books a year on leadership, and of course now the number is just through the roof. Like if you just, if you just Google leadership books, it will come up with something like 84 million results. One Harvard professor says that being a leader has become a mantra. It is a presumed path to money and power, a medium for achievement, both institutional and, and, and individual. Another author says, even of church leadership, the words leader or leadership carry with them connotations of giftedness, preeminence, status, position, and power. But this is not at all 
what Paul has in mind and what he is concerned about, the reason why he turns his attention to church leaders in chapter 3. Chapter 3 is for all of us because it is related to his purpose statement for the entire book, which we'll get to in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 3, where Paul says, I am writing these things to you so that you may know how to behave in the household or the family of God. This is for the entire family. And yet, Paul and Jesus' understanding of what a leader is and who a leader is supposed to be is diametrically opposed to corporate Wall Street leaders. So enough intro. You might have seen the weekly email or perhaps you read in the liturgy that we might be getting through all of uh, verses 1 through 13 tonight. I was planning on doing that, getting through elders and deacons tonight. Uh, but on Friday afternoon, I had already written just so much on elders. I didn't want to sell short the deacons. So we'll have an entire Sunday next week to think about that immensely important office. Uh, so tonight, we'll think about elders, pastors. What is an elder? Three questions for us tonight. What is an elder? What are the qualifications for an elder? And then why should I care? You sitting in the pew, perhaps you've never thought about uh, being a pastor or something like that. So what in the world should you care about this sermon for? Well, hang in there. First of all, what is an elder? Now, first of all, you might be thinking, why in the world is he saying the word elder? I didn't hear Aaron ever say the word elder. I heard him say overseer. Well, very attentive listening, everyone. Keep it up. But Paul... And the rest of the New Testament writers use these words, elder, overseer, pastor, shepherd. They use them interchangeably. In Titus 1, Paul says, he gives the instructions to Titus, he says, appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And then later, he says, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He's using overseer and elder interchangeably. In Acts 20, Luke, the writer, tells us that Paul called together all of the Ephesian elders the same city, Ephesus, where Timothy now is, where Paul is writing to him. Paul calls together the Ephesian elders and the elders of this city, Paul calls them overseers. He tells them to shepherd, to care for those in their flock. So elders, overseers, shepherds, pastors, it's all the same office. These are all the same thing. They're interchangeable words. And yet, even though these pastors, these shepherds or overseers are leading the flock, they are yet sheep, sheep themselves. I am a pastor, I am a shepherd, and yet I am not the shepherd. You will often hear us talk about or call ourselves under shepherds because we pastors are following the good shepherd, the chief shepherd of the flock, the Lord Jesus himself. It's our job as pastors, as under shepherds, to try to keep the sheep together and to keep us moving, following Jesus together. So follow your pastors as they follow Christ, but never forget that we are sheep ourselves. More on that later. So elders are pastors, they are shepherds. These are synonymous and interchangeable words, but they are words that should be used with care. For instance, while Matt Jones will, Lord willing, after our next member meeting, become our deacon of music ministry, he is not the worship pastor. We just say like our song leader or our music leader. We might call him our music deacon after next month. Why? Because he's not an elder, because he's not a pastor. Certainly he may become an elder one day in which then we will just conveniently change his title to the worship pastor. But not until then. 
Andrew tonight, as he was leading so excellently for us, is not the worship pastor this week and then the bass player next week. Uh, He just led the music for us tonight. When I was hired at Desert Springs uh, as to, to lead the youth ministry, I was hired very, very specifically as the youth minister. And then after two years of being on staff there at that church, I became an elder of the church, and then my title changed to youth pastor. But not until then. All of this might sound really, really nitpicky. But it's important that we, as a church, use care and precision with the offices of the church. Paul has given a list of qualifications here in this chapter and elsewhere in Titus 1. And we want to, uh, in submission to the Bible, we want to, with care and precision, only call someone a pastor, an overseer, an elder, if they have first been tested and affirmed that this person actually meets these qualifications. We don't want to call someone a pastor if they aren't. So here at Christ Church, we strongly believe that not only an elder is a pastor, but we believe that what seems to be the New Testament precedent of a plurality of elders, that there are plural or multiple pastors in given churches. That is, there isn't a senior pastor and then his associates or his deacons or his little helpers or something. Titus, Paul tells Titus to appoint elders in Crete. Nearly every time the word elder is used in the New Testament, it is used in the plural form. In chapter 5 of this, 1 Timothy, Paul says to doubly honor those elders who labor in preaching and teaching, which could mean, Paul could mean in chapter 5, don't honor those who don't really take seriously the job of preaching and teaching, but I think more likely he means that there are different kinds of elders. Some who especially preach and teach, and some who don't. And I think the double honor there, we'll get to this in chapter 5, but the double honor there in chapter 5 is about payment, meaning some elders are paid and some elders are not paid. So Clint and I are both staff elders, staff pastors. We're paid by the church. Kyle Junick and Ryan Gilmore are not. They have other jobs that pay them. So while Clint and I may be more regularly visible to you all here, we carry no more pastoral authority than Kyle and Ryan do. We just happen to get our paychecks from the church. So what is an elder? An elder is a pastor, a shepherd, an overseer who serves and leads the church alongside other pastors, given that there are qualified other men in the church to be a a plural elder. But how does an elder lead the church, though? What are What are the qualifications for a man to be an elder? So secondly, let's go through these qualifications. Many of these qualifications stand in stark opposition to many of the characteristics of the false teachers that Paul is confronting throughout the rest of this book. And interestingly and noteworthy is that really apart from one, Paul is going to describe who an elder is and not what an elder does. That is, he seems to be focused on the elder's character rather than the elder's duties. Now, before we get into these actual qualifications listed here, an implied qualification is that an elder be a man. We spent the last three weeks unpacking uh, why we think that an all-male eldership, as the elders of a church who are acting as the fathers of the church, is actually a part of God's good wisdom and his design for the church. If you miss those three weeks and you hearing me say that an all-male eldership is actually good for a church, if that sounds controversial or sexist, then just go back and re-listen or listen to those three sermons and perhaps we might persuade you. But in verse 1, 
Paul gives a first qualification. He says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So a first qualification for an elder is that of desire. He actually has to want to be an elder. Paul is not saying that um, here, that he's not emphasizing necessarily a person, but he is emphasizing a task. If a person aspires to this office, this person desires a noble task. He's not saying that a person who desires to become a great leader or something is like a really noble person. But instead, Paul is saying that a person who aspires to lead God's people in a certain direction, this person desires, he aspires to a dignified, an honorable, a noble task. Now, why would Paul feel the need to say that at all? I think most people would just assume, yeah, that's, a, that's an honorable, noble thing to want to become a pastor. Well, because the role of spiritual leadership can be daunting. It can be difficult. Hebrews 13 says that pastors watch over church members' souls and will ultimately give an account of how they shepherded those individual sheep, those individual people, and how they led those individual sheep. That's a daunting task. Calvin says that it is no light matter to represent God's Son in such a great task as caring for the salvation of souls whom the Lord himself has designed to purchase with his own blood and in ruling the church, which is God's inheritance. And so, just like it would be a lot easier in many, many ways for parents to never have children. Like, think about it, parents. Don't, actually, don't do this. <laughs> uh, but like, if you could just go back in time and think about your budget before you had children, think about your vacation schedule. Uh, like, you could go where you want to go, do what you want to do, uh, spend and buy what you want to buy if you didn't have kids. Like, wow, there's a lot of freedom in that. But I don't think any of us would necessarily go back in time and actually do it, right? Why? Because we have seen that parenting is a noble task of shepherding young people into the knowledge of God. Pastoring is the same daunting yet noble task. It would be a whole lot easier for dudes like Kyle and Ryan to not care for your souls in the way in which they do. They've got busy, busy jobs and their own families to pastor, but they love you so much to undertake this daunting yet noble task. So the first qualification, in light of the difficult nature of wanting to be a pastor, the first qualification is that this man actually has to want to do it. He has to aspire to it, to desire it. Not every man does, though hopefully by the end of this sermon, more of you will. So secondly, after desire is a first qualification, a second qualification is that an elder must be exemplary. In verses 2 and 3, Paul will give many qualifications, which we might just put, sum up and put in one category of that of being an exemplary Christian. So he says, verses 2 and 3, Therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. So I mean exemplary, not like we typically use that word, like really awesome and just exceptional, but exemplary like in the way that, think what, what does that word sound like? Example, right? He is exemplary. 
A, a pastor is a good example. He's not perfect and never sinning, but an example. Paul is very, very concerned about the kind of gospel and the kind of God that an unbelieving world is observing in this letter. And the reality is, is that often the kind of God and kind of gospel that people, an unbelieving uh, world may see, depends on observing pastors, depends on observing a church's leaders. We can all think of pastors and leaders who have been publicly disqualified because of moral failing, some very famously and some that you've never heard of, but all of them have carried enormous effects. You've never heard of Marcy's childhood pastor who in Denton, Texas, 20, 30 years ago, left his family for another woman. But her childhood church never recovered. And undoubtedly, many in our hometown of Denton, Texas, when they heard the news, thought, yep, I knew it. That church is a sham. I knew it. Christians are a sham. I knew it. Jesus is a sham when this happened. The exemplary nature of a pastor is paramount. But you'll notice in this list that there's really nothing, apart from perhaps one, that shouldn't be true of every Christian. This isn't like some, like, if you really want to be an awesome A-team Christian, you should aspire to be gentle or hospitable. This should be true of everyone, every Christian. It's just that a pastor ought to be exemplary, ought to be an example of what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. You want to know what it looks like to be a Christian? Not in sinless perfection, but you want to know what a Christian looks like? Watch Clint Moore. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, brother. <laughs> You want to know what it looks like to be self-controlled and sober-minded? Hang out for a week with Kyle Junick. You want to know what it looks like to be hospitable and welcoming people into your home? Spend some time with Ryan Gilmore. You want to know how to not get overly into the pursuit of money and just the more and more gathering of things, what it looks like to be a steward of the things that God has given you and to act in generosity, hang out with Clint. You want to know how to think about alcohol or other substances? Well, don't get drunk like Ryan doesn't. I want to know what it looks like to not cause division, to not be quarrelsome, but to pursue peace and reconciliation. Watch Kyle. These men are examples to you. Walk in one wife purity like they do. Don't look at pornography like they don't. You want to know what might be appropriate for, your, for interaction with other men and women in the church? Well, just observe them. That's how a Christian ought to act. Again, not perfectly, but even when they sin, you're going to observe them sin, everybody. I'm just going to tell you right now. But even when they sin, watch how they respond. Watch how they react. Watch how they pursue repentance and ask for forgiveness and humility. Follow them. Now, we could unpack all of those 
qualifications and spend like a whole sermon on all of those, how we all ought to be growing in all of these areas. But one caveat on the whole husband of one wife thing, it doesn't mean that an elder must have one wife, thus precluding single men. What Paul is confronting is is a Greco-Roman culture that celebrated mistresses, that celebrated concubines, that celebrated multiple divorces. So Paul is commending and setting setting apart as examples men who are known for their one-wifeness, who are known for their sexual fidelity, who are exemplary in how they think about the opposite sex. One of the clearest ways for the church to stand in clarity against the first century culture was its understanding of sexuality as God has intended it. So the church then and the church today needs pastors who will pursue sexual integrity, who will be one woman men. Or if they are single men, that they will be known for being no women men. I would love it to have godly single men as elders leading this church one day. It'd be great. So qualifications for eldership, for being a pastor, are one, a desire for it, two, that they have exemplary character, and three, the one bit in this list that isn't merely a character qualification, but that he is able to teach. That is, is this brother growing in his understanding of the depth of the doctrines of God? Does he understand sound doctrine? Can he identify it when it's not? Can he lead the church in understanding the truths of God? Now, ability doesn't necessarily mean expectation of preaching. If Clint and I both got hit by buses today, or any other, uh, perhaps you daydream about the ways in which Clint and I might die, uh, I assure you, Kyle and Ryan would lead this church well. They would lead you uh, well and through the rest of First Timothy and then on throughout the rest of the Bible. But one of my primary respons- responsibilities that you all pay me for is this job, the job of preaching. Kyle and Ryan may not have the experience of sermon crafting that I do. and just I mean, I didn't know how to preach when I started doing this. Uh, you just get better at it. I'm still not any good at this, and Lord willing, I'll be decent at it 10 years from now. But uh, they could lead you at least not into heresy. (laughs) And, (laughs) we set a a low bar there, huh? But that's good. That's really, really good. Not, hey, this is seriously, serious. There are men here who are godly men and want to lead the church into truth, but given the opportunity, would not be able to would not be able to identify false teaching when it's false. So that low bar is a very important bar. Not to mention that these guys are great small group teachers and membership class teachers. So ability doesn't necessarily mean that we should get on a four-man, four-week rotation of preaching. But if a brother doesn't have the first clue, the first idea of what is up from down theologically, or is easily swayed by false teaching, then he is not qualified to be a pastor. He's not able to teach. So desire, exemplary character, the ability to teach, and four, attentive parenting. This is our fourth qualification. Verses four and five, he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? 
this also isn't just a character qualification. There are many, many godly men who have exemplary character but are kind of lousy parents, kind of lousy husbands even. So what makes a good dad, a good household leader? I think attentiveness put together with foresight. An elder isn't required to have godly children. I think we all know of amazingly godly pastors who have children, adult children now, who are not Christians. That does not disqualify them from being an elder of a church. No parent can force any of his children to become Christians. That is only God's prerogative. But an exemplary parent has children who are known to the community around them for their submission and for their respect of their parents. That almost sounds like a scary and tyrannical thing, right? You gotta have, you gotta be this tyrant father elder who demands submission of his children. But the only reason we come to that conclusion, the only reason that sounds scary is because of what we talked about last week. That submission is a cuss word in America in 2019. But submission is not. Submission is for our joy, for those who are submitting. Elders are not to be exemplary tyrants. But that little clause of, that comes before keeping his children submissive, it helps us understand what, what Paul's talking about. He says, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Obedience and full submission is not something that can be taken, can be coerced from some, someone. It must be freely given by the one who is under authority. So in treating his children with dignity and respect, he gains their submission. He gains their respect. And of course, this looks different in different stages of children's lives. In younger years, it, it looks perhaps more like commands, like instruction. In older years, especially into the later teenage years, uh, demanding or requiring submission and obedience looks more like question asking, looks more like frequent conversations with a teenager. Discipline will certainly look different for a five-year-old and a 15-year-old. But here's where attentiveness and foresight come in. An attentive father, especially when he has young children, is especially attentive to the way in which a child is not quick to hear, is not quick to obey, is not quick to obey with a happy heart even, because he has the foresight to see that, yeah, this is, we could deal with this now as a two or three or four or five or seven-year-old, or we could deal with this later when they're 16, 17, or 18. And which will be more difficult? Let's take the easy road now. So he has the foresight to deal with it now. Attentive parenting isn't just a qualification because Paul wants the church to be filled with respectful children, though that would be a wonderful byproduct. But why is this a qualification? Why does Paul put this as a qualification for eldership. Well, to turn Paul's words around, one commentator says, a man whose, whose children respect him must be a good father. Think about it. A, a, a man who has children who respect him must be a good father, which is exactly what the church is looking for. A man who cares for his own children well is ready to care for all of God's children, is ready to care for the entire church. He already knows how to instruct, how to nurture, how to discipline, and how to deal patiently with rebellion. He's already shown himself to be a father of the church when he's a father, 
when he's fathering well in the family. All of this could be said of the same thing with like alcohol and money and self-control that we talked about earlier. Why should we ever expect a man to exercise godly rule over others when he can't even rule over himself? That would be stupid for us to assume that he, can, he can't rule himself, but he can rule others well. So here, why should we ever expect a man to exercise attentive, careful, with foresight, rule over the family of God when he can't do that in his own family? Now, for what it's worth, by no means are any of us, even the four of us pastors, are like parenting experts or something. Uh, By no means. But we've had several of you asking for help lately, and that's good. Please don't think that it is a sign of weakness to ask for parenting help. That is a sign of godly humility. None of us know what we're doing, right? We're trying to figure it out as best as we can with as many resources and godly help as we can. We're already planning a parenting class to be one of our first year's uh, core classes sometime in the next calendar year. So let's think about this together as we all lead our individual families together as the family of God. Okay, fifth An elder must be a mature Christian. Verse 6. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. The word that Paul uses there for a recent convert is literally a new growth. He must not be a new growth. He must not be a new plant, a bud, a seedling. It's like the first tiny growth of an oak tree or something. Our old house, we had a mimosa tree in the front, and then there was a bunch of other trees. And in springtime, when the grass is starting to grow, you see those little tiny uh, first little seedlings coming up. Uh, That is what Paul is saying that an elder must not be. Paul wisely tells Timothy that he should start looking for bigger trees. They don't have to be like 100-foot oak trees. Perhaps even a young but growing but sturdy sapling. A sapling that will be able to withstand a really torrential thunderstorm or April Albuquerque windstorm. Don't go find any new Christian, this new seedling, and expect him to not get blown away. If a brother is a new Christian, he may be growing like crazy, and that is great. Praise God for that. But that growth, especially then when affirmed with a position of authority, could make for a deadly combination. Deadly. He may not understand authority as a means to serve and to bless others like Jesus does, which only comes from years of living under Jesus' authority. He may be coming from a lifetime of understanding worldly leadership and authority as like a stamp of approval for being awesome. Like you've been awesome at your job for 10 years while you get promoted as a manager, right? This is not what Paul is saying. We don't want someone to perhaps convince themselves that God has chosen him not as a pastor, not not, not just as a pastor, but even as a Christian because of how amazingly he's growing, how awesome he's doing. As if a seedling has any reason to congratulate himself for his growth. I'm growing way more than that other seedling over there, so I must be awesome. No. We should be looking to affirm mature, not recently converted men as our pastors. Now, Paul doesn't give a time threshold for this. He doesn't say after 12 months you may begin looking for 
looking to affirm this man as an elder. The four of us in our mid-30s have all been Christians for over a decade, but we would actually love to begin affirming other elders who are actually elder than us. Bring our the median age up a little bit. Have some brothers who have shown themselves uh, to have years and decades of godly wisdom and maturity. Someone that can be even an example for us. All of this, though, along with the next and final qualification, all of this must be considered because this is Satan's plan to destroy the church, to take out elders. This is basic military strategy, right? Like, you want to take out a people, what should you do? You should take out its leaders, which is exactly what the snake did in Genesis 3, as we saw last week. So Paul, together in that fifth qualification, gives one sixth and final qualification, which is really just a catch-all for everything he set up into this point, but then brings it back to Satan again. He says, moreover, he, this potential elder, must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into, dis- into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So this brother must be thought of well outside. Again, a catch-all for a good reputation an exemplary Christian. And often and unfortunately, many if not most folks who are not Christians form their opinions about Christians based on their opinion about a pastor. Many of you who have voiced concerns, who have voiced hesitations about us being part of the Southern Baptist Convention, why do you have those concerns and hesitations? Well, not exclusively, but my guess is likely because of what you have heard many big, famous Southern Baptist pastors say on news channels. Say, on, say with unthoughtful, uncareful, unhelpful words. Not necessarily because you know and disagree with the individual members of their churches or something. So the pastors... Must be, a pastor must be well thought of by outsiders because the reputation of their church and the reputation of Christ depends on it. Why? Because an el- uh, Satan wants to take that elder out. He is doing everything he can to destroy the reputation of that elder, to destroy the reputation of Christ himself. So this gets to our final question. Why should I care? Why should all of you care about any of this? Why shouldn't we just... The four of us, we get together on Tuesday mornings uh, to, to meet and to pray for all of you. Why shouldn't we have just read through this by ourselves and then just skip to the good stuff for you all? Well, this hasn't been one giant exercise to get you to like us, to get you to uh, appreciate us more. Here's why. If I could leave you with one takeaway here tonight, it would be this. Understanding that it is Satan's strategy to destroy a church, to destroy the reputation of Christ, his best strategy is to destroy the elders of a church, please pray for us. Pray for us ongoingly and regularly. I'm not trying to make us out to be some martyr that you should feel sorry for or something, but if indeed Satan's strategy to make the chief shepherd look bad is to take out the chief shepherd's under-shepherds, then please pray for us. Pray that we would actually understand rightly good and true doctrine. Pray for our marriages, our families, our wives and our children who perhaps feel a particular 
under the microscopeness that just becomes of, or comes with being married or the child of a pastor. Pray for us because we are all four of us still really, really dumb sheep. We are relatively young. We are still immature in many ways. We are all, all four of us. Myself, I am prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. I'm prone to leave the God I love. Pray for us as we lead you. Pray that we would not be stagnant in these qualifications, but be growing in them. That we would be growing in our sober-mindedness, growing in our self-control, growing in our hospitality, our gentleness, our generosity, and the rest. But here's another reason many of you ought to care. You men out there, perhaps you've never once considered that you might be or ought to be an elder of a church one day. You've kind of either explicitly or kind of subconsciously just thought, Psh, like, that's for the really serious Christians. Uh, that's for, like the, like, the varsity, varsity Christians, and I am totally content playing JV. Well, not every man will become an elder, and it's certainly not the highest-ranking office or something in the church. Being a member is not like being like a lowly second lieutenant or something. And if you just prove yourself and keep your head down and work hard for, you, for, you, for a few years, you'll get promoted to captain, otherwise known as deacon. And then you work hard for four or five years there, and then you get promoted to general. You get to become a pastor. That is not the way it works. Our churches need more men and women who will, like Jesus, serve the, serve the church in the role of deacon, perhaps for the rest of their life, and being happy because God has gifted them in that way and just serving with great happiness the church. Come back next week to think more about deacons. But if you have never thought, you men, if you have never thought, I want to be growing in such a way that I'm like Fledge the Flying Horse at the end of the last battle of the Chronicles of Narnia, where you're like stamping around and saying like further up and further in, guys, like follow me, let's go. Have you, if you have never thought of yourself that I should be growing in godliness in such a way that people want to follow me as I follow Christ, well, why not? Why not? Like if a single dude or a married man ever said, you know what? If you're a single dude, I'm totally content to be single for the rest of my life. Now, there are plenty of good reasons to remain single, and many of you will remain single for the rest of your life. It's a gift that God has given. But if you're a single dude who's saying, you know what, I'm content to be single for the rest of my life, you know why? Because then I don't have the burden of having a wife. Then I, don't, then I can do whatever I want to. Or if you're married, many of you will not have children. But if you are married and you are content to say, you know what, we're good with no kids. It is awesome not having kids. We can go to Europe whenever we want. <laughs> well, I would confront you in your selfishness. So if the only reason for you not thinking towards eldership is, man, I don't want that expectation. I don't want that demanding, daunting task of caring for people, of living an exemplary life. I don't want that. Well, there are many and plenty of good reasons to not be an elder. 
many of them. And we want to be careful to not overly demand, and even with our current elders, not overly burden them. We have two two-year terms of non-staff elders. We are going to, Kyle's going to leave kicking and screaming. We're going to have to kick him out. But we're going to demand of him that he does not spend more than two consecutive two-year terms with us because we don't want him to, and his family, Kyle, we don't want him or his family to begrudge that he pastored the church so well. Now, after a year or two, we'll gladly let him come back. But there are many of reasons not to become an elder. Oftentimes, the timing is not right. There are particular demands of someone's own family or own jobs or work. But guys like single dudes, college guys, young men, even young boys out there, all of you who are in Torch and should be listening to this right now, all of you who are out there, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of an elder, he desires a noble task. It is a noble task. It is daunting, but it is noble and good to lead the family of God. So in your teenage years, are you becoming the kind of man in your 30s that the pastors of your church would approach and ask you to pastor with them? You're ne- you'll never be what you're not becoming. If you You'll, you'll never, if you're not becoming that today as a 17-year-old, you will not be that as a 30-year-old. You men who are in your 30s, are you becoming the kind of man who in your 50s, the pastors of your church would approach and say, pastor this church with us, brother. You are exemplary in your character and your love for God and your dependence upon the cross. Help us pastor this church. You'll never be what you're not becoming. Not in giftedness or abilities, but in character. Not in what you can do, but in who you are pressing in now, today, in your weakness, in your minute-by-minute trust and confidence in the cross of Christ, so that over the years, maybe not quite there yet, but over the years, as you are like a sponge being filled more and more by the Spirit, when you are pressed and squeezed by difficulty in your life, the actual fruit of the Spirit come out of you, rather than anger or quarreling or defensiveness, or criticism. So, men of all ages, considering all these things that we've talked about over the last three weeks, how God has called you in a particular role of to aspire to lead those, aspire, aspire to lead your family, this family of God, this church. Christ Church, we, your four pastors, we want to lead you. We're going somewhere, we're going further up, we're going further in, and we want you guys to come with us. We all move together towards Christ together. We won't do so perfectly. We are, like I said, we are going to fail you. The four of us are going to fail you. We're going to disappoint you. We're going to hurt you perhaps sometime, not intentionally and perhaps not very often, but it's going to happen. We're going to sin against you. But... Let's keep moving in repentance and humility towards Christ together, his flock. Understanding that the world is watching. The world is watching. And they do not see Jesus, but they see us. This is what we're going to think about for the next many months together throughout the rest of this book. The world is watching us. So what kind of Christ will they see? Lord, have mercy. Oh God, we pray that you would help us. Help us, give us eyes to see you. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. 
the great and chief shepherd of the sheep. As we, as we walk together, your flock, your people, protect us, Lord, we pray. Keep us, give us a, an ever-increasing love for each other, unity with each other. For those of us whom you have given places of authority, help us to use that authority to serve and to bless. For those of us who are in places of submission, help us to do so in, in dignified happiness and dignified trust. Help us to, to walk as a church with lives that are worthy of the gospel of our glorious King who is highly exalted and has the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father, we pray all of these things. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.